Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Sam Hammer, aspiring journalist, friend of the pod, and a Massachusetts voter. That's right. I'm here with a guest host because Jen is at Sundance, having a good time, I'm sure, and we'll hear all about that next week. So I'm here with my good friend Sam Hammer, past guest of the pod, M.A. Polly watcher, participant extraordinaire. You've been in and around government and campaigns, so right here at the top, tell people what you've been up to most recently. Well, I am not your uh, state senator, Steve, sorry about that, but um, instead I've been spending a lot of time in Melrose uh, doing other political shenanigans, picking up some Melrose Democratic City Committee work and helping with the um, override vote that's coming up on April 2nd. Vote yes, please, everybody. Um, And... We've launched a new pod ourselves uh, on Monday. That's right. <laughs> the name is awesome, by the way. Your podcast name is awesome. So tell people what it's called and where to find it. Um, it is The Audacity of Nope. Um, you can find it on all pod channels, specifically Anchor, where we're, we're producing it through. But it's three broads who will get together to talk about politics and other funny things. And we bring on a guest host every week um, to highlight somebody who's doing some amazing work in um, government and politics in Massachusetts. So stay tuned. Um, and yeah, you're welcome anytime. And we're we're always glad to plug uh, other Massachusetts political pods. I listened to the first episode, definitely recommend it. And um, there's some uh, interesting policy that you guys get into that I didn't know about. Eric Lesser apparently is offering people $10,000 to move to Western Massachusetts. Yes. Potentially. Didn't know about that. Glad we could tell you something. Um, so very, very interesting. Definitely highly recommend it. But now we arrive at the key moment, the existential question, why are we here? So we are here today to catch up on uh, the election is a long time away from now, um, unless you're in a town and you have a municipal election coming up in April. And we're just trying to see what the parties are up to, how they're reshifting themselves after uh, the midterms in 2018, see how they can get more involved in uh, city and local politics to push their people forward. That's right. So we've got three great guests to help us out with that, sort of from around the political spectrum. We've got Ed Lyons talking about the the Massachusetts Republican Party. He's written several, I think it's fair to say, very long pieces mm-hmm. <laughs> about where things are and where he sees them going. So definitely looking forward to asking him about those. He's always very interesting. Um, we've also got Jonathan Cohn, mm-hmm. uh, who runs Progressive Massachusetts, um, which is a political force which has only been growing in recent years. Um, so to, to ask him about what he's up to this year and next year. And also coming in today is Nina Leung of Emerge Massachusetts. Uh, she's the new executive director. And um, we've met her a few times, but it'll be interesting to see where the class is this year and um, what their vision is for Emerge in the next few years. Yeah, I'm excited about that because we, we had the previous executive director, Ryan Olson, on. Um, we've had her on the horse race. We also had the chair of the board of Emerge Massachusetts in the past, Pooja Mehta, for actually a very first live event. Um, and, and it's been a fascinating year, a fascinating couple of years in terms of um, the number of women who have been elected in Massachusetts and around the country. So just to hear her thoughts on where things go from here, very interested in that. So let's get going. The Mass GOP has not enjoyed much electoral success in recent years. In fact, other than the governor's office, the state's Republican Party has been all but shut out of power in the legislature, constitutional offices, and the congressional delegation. There are different theories on how our state's politics got to where we are today, all but a one-party state. For one of those, we're joined by Ed Lyons, who's written... I think a pretty long piece, it's fair to say, on where he sees the party headed and where it is today. He's the Lord of Long Reads and the Duke of Descent, Ed Lyons. Welcome back to the horse race. It's good to be back. 
So you write long pieces, like we said. Your most recent one, according to Sam, was a hefty 28-minute read, according to Medium, at 7,000 words. How do you reduce it to something suitable for podcast consumption? What are the takeaways? <laughs> well, the first thing I'd like to say is that, you know, um, the Massachusetts Republican Party matters. I think a lot of people tell me, like, well, why does it matter? Why write about it? You know, people don't like parties anymore. And, and what I tell them is that, you know, if you if you want bipartisanship, then you're invested in the partisanship of Chai Baker and the Mass GOP. If you want balance, you need something pulling on the right hand pan of the right hand pan of the scale. So I think it does matter um, what's happening in the Mass GOP, what force we are in in state politics, and what's going on right now. And we're in a time of real change and division inside the party. Baker is soaring, and everyone else is struggling. And I think people are having a hard time reconciling that. So I tried to write about it to say that you know the party is struggling and. Uh, Baker is very appealing, but the party can't seem to get its act together and be more like him, even though he has control of the party for the most part. So in thinking about um, this next upcoming year, I'm really interested in municipal elections. How can the party help on the municipal side where there seems to be such division even at the local level? At the local uh, city committee level, those who show up to these meetings tend to be uh, both on both parties, on the one side or the other, at the the fringes of political ideology. There seems to be no place for moderates to, to attend. Uh, yes, I think the problem is the nationalization of our politics has sort of falling down like an acid rain into all of our state and local politics around the country. And you find people that are very upset because of what they're consuming at the national level, which really has very little to do with governing at the state and local level. And so it can be very frustrating. People sort of arrive at these meetings you know, uh, with very strong opinions and they're not willing to listen to anybody. What I hope is that for the Mass GOP is that, that we get involved in local politics in an almost nonpartisan sort of way. How do we sort of say, hey, you know, you know, the Baker administration has a great agenda for, for municipalities. How do we take that agenda into best practices for cities and towns and help them just improve themselves in as, with as little partisanship as possible? I don't know if we can do that, but I think that would be a great thing for us to work on. So 2018 had some examples of, of candidates who I think tried to em embrace something like the Baker model. You know, you had Peter Tedeschi, who ran down in the 9th Congressional District. For instance, um, you had Anthony Amore running for Secretary of State, and both of them still were pretty far behind. So what uh, what different does the party need to do to, to help candidates like that, whatever office they're running for, be more successful? It's not easy. I think that, you know, what's, what's funny is even though people say our activists can be extreme and sometimes they can be, the Republicans who actually win office are pretty normal. It's pretty rare that you have a Republican who's been elected who, you know, sounds extreme or doesn't accept the consensus of Massachusetts politics around civil rights or something else or public health. So I, I think there's an ecosystem we're working in that has little to do with ideology in terms of, you know, on-the-ground support and money and name recognition and a bunch of things. We've had plenty of normal candidates who really would have been fine in, in, in the office had they just had these other things work in their favor. Um, the party has gotten a lot better around voter data, uh, getting volunteers to help. Um, we can seem to find candidates who have a long sort of track record of civic engagement. We have a lot of, you know, businessmen and activists who have to run. We don't have as many people as the Democrats do who, you know, have been in minor offices or they're involved in nonprofit work or they have some sort of civic record where they've proven their, uh, their desire uh, to serve. So we have to solve that problem, I think. We have to, you know, find people like in Rick Green's district, you know, um, I should say Lori Tran's district, that – that in that district that, you know, she had a track record, you know, in civic life, and he's just another businessman who thinks he has the answers. Uh, and Rick is a very nice guy. Actually, ran a very classy, uh, a moderate campaign, but it didn't help him, of course. So I do think we need to find more people who have a, a long civic track record, but we have first have to start by encouraging people to build up that track record, which we haven't done uh, at all. 
So you just underscore that people are really craving for moderates, craving for classic fiscal conservatives, and if I can just call it the elephant in the room, pun intended, um, electing Jim Lyons as the Mass GOP chair, as you said, would, would be suicide. Can you talk a little bit more about what that looked like from the inside, that entire process? You mean him becoming our party chairman? Mm. Well, Jim's actually a great guy. He's very well-liked. Uh, very few people who know him would call him a bigot um, because he's such a good guy. What happened was is that we kind of got used to having Kirsten Hughes as our chairwoman, and she's been great. She's a you know, young, female, educated um, lawyer from Quincy. Um, she was a good face of the party in terms of the demographic change that we were looking for. Um, very loyal to Chai Baker and to the Republicans in the state legislature. And, you know, she decided that six years was enough. Six years is actually kind of a long time for a party chairman of any party. And uh, we were sort of caught flat-footed in terms of, oh, my goodness, well, we had this big, you know, Baker had this triumphant win. We had, we're dealing with the blue wave and all that. Didn't go very well for us um, <laughs> below Baker's level. And then suddenly there's a chairman's election. And, uh, you know, uh, Brent Anderson has been party uh, treasurer for a long time. Everybody knows him. He's respected. He's conservative. He's not, his, his views are not the mainstream. I don't mean that he's not mainstream, but his views are not in the, the middle of Massachusetts politics. He's more to the right, but he's normal. And he was sort of the person that we in the establishment thought would just take over. And then, uh, you know, Jeff Deal, you know, tried out for the job for a while, but then didn't have support, went through accounting noses. So then Jim Lyons appeared because he's looking for a job. And, uh, and he sort of was the guy who the far right liked because they've always loved him, and also the guy who is very pro-Baker, and he's really genuinely pro-Baker. He's not just saying that he's held events for him. He's supported the convention of reliably. The Jim Lyons really is a pro-Baker guy. So the state committee at the last minute was seduced by the idea they could have it all, and they voted for Jim Lyons, despite the fact that demographically he's the wrong direction for the party needs to go. I have to read something that you wrote on Twitter where you often, for anybody who doesn't follow Ed, by the way, he's at Mysterious Rook, very interesting, very I'm funny. I'm a big fan. And lots of good chess jokes, lots of good <laughs> jokes of many kinds. Um, but also, you wrote this. You wrote um, that Jim Lyons' mass GOP chairman bid instantly unites all the tribes of anti-establishment white people who can't win elections like angry Tea Party conservatives, anti-religious conservatives, angry Trump conservatives, and only slightly angry libertarian conservatives. That sounds a lot different than what you're saying here today. Has he changed your view, or, or um, how did you get from there to where you are today? Uh, I haven't changed. I mean, it's true the fact that a lot of people who don't like things about our state politics and who are angry about those things will all like a different part of, of Jim Lyons. Um, so, you know, the anti-abortion people love him. The people who, you know, are physical conservatives love him. So uh, there are a lot of different tribes in the party who will all like him. None of them have politics that would win a statewide election or win a, a federal seat or even win, you know, most seats in the legislature. So, you know, I think that when the far right says we can unite with the further right, that has nothing to do with convincing the 90 percent of people who live in the state who are not registered Republicans to vote for us. So my joke was to say the fact that, like, you know, this, this unity is, is actually meaningless for winning more elections, even if it makes going to events feel better. Got it. Uh, so you have another piece coming out this week, more focused on Charlie Baker. Give, give us a little preview. Yeah, so I'm working on a bigger piece about trying to understand Charlie Baker, who's been such a riddle um, uh, in our state politics, and he keeps being called an enigma, and people keep writing about him. They just have a hard time. You know, they're trying to shoehorn him into footwear that they're familiar with, but they keep not succeeding, and they get frustrated about it. I think that uh, in terms of the party, Baker sort of, you know, he is a Republican, but he never talks about his Republican ideology. 
I think it's kind of funny that he's sort of the, you know, his Republican character is like the invisible right hand of state government, that it's always at work, but you can't seem to identify it. He's only spoken in the partisan way about his Republican beliefs for two minutes and 50 seconds in the last four years, which is at the very end of his speech at the convention in April, when he briefly outlined the differences between his view of being Republican and the Democrats. It was brief, their applause was lukewarm, and it was over. And he actually ran a whole governor's campaign without saying anything like that ever again, which was amusing. Uh, he does speak a little bit more about that in private and fundraisers with, with candidates. So it doesn't, it's not like he doesn't have partisan views. But I think one of the reasons why he's an enigma is because he actually doesn't talk about partisan things at all. He doesn't even like using the word Democrat. He prefers to say our opponents. He doesn't use the word union. He says special interests, that he's lexically you know, disconnected from, from partisan rhetoric so nobody can recognize his Republican character. I wrote about it for Commonwealth Magazine, as you guys know, a few months ago, explaining some of how his Republican character affects state politics. But it really does matter what he, what he believes. And the key insight is that he's actually not a moderate. He's decided to to govern in a moderate way while keeping his Republican convictions. That takes incredible discipline, but explains some of the things that the public can't understand. I just have one really brief question uh, to wrap it up. Um, what are your predictions for 2020? Uh, another blue wave with a lot of Republicans <laughs> sinking under the surface. What can I say? I, I can't imagine how this ends where we gain seats in the legislature in 2020, but like Jim Lyons, I'm a very religious man. I believe in epiphanies, miracles, and conversions. <laughs> so, so I'm hoping that somehow that we get a few people to win. Um, but I wouldn't bet on it. As I said in the piece, I'm hoping that we go local. I'm hoping Charlie Baker finds a way to support people in office even more than he does now and that we somehow uh, miraculously win some seats. All right. Well, check out Ed Lyons' pieces. He's got uh, one there, one coming. He posts under Mysterious Rook on Twitter and on Medium. Definitely worth a read. Ed Lyons, thank you for being on the horse race. Thank you for having me. In the 2018 election season, we saw a seismic shift in Massachusetts where long-term incumbents were put out to pasture, usually by candidates challenging them from the left. This was not only true for Democrats, whose seats got pulled further left, but also long-standing Republican officeholders losing to Democratic challengers. Our next guest was involved in many of these campaigns. He is a self-described super-volunteer for progressive campaigns, the co-chair of the Progressive Massachusetts Issues Committee, and a Twitter slayer. Welcome, Jonathan Cohn. Thank you for having me. Twitter slayer was appropriate. Yes, okay, I, I, feel like I embrace, embrace. it. <laughs> <laughs> so Progressive Massachusetts is a grassroots organization of voters mm -hmm. who got mm -hmm. very involved in the elections this last fall. What is your role in pushing a progressive agenda in the primary and midterm elections? Yeah, so I note that from like a number of different perspectives, both as individually and as kind of endorsements that we made, talking about, let's say, with Massachusetts races, is that a lot of people do focus on national elections a lot of the time, and we did have an amazing upset victory with uh, in the 7th Congressional District. However, there's a huge gap that we often point out between where our state legislature, where our state legislature is and where it could be. Because a lot of people in Massachusetts like to think that we're the most progressive state that we could possibly be. And in many ways, we are better than other states in a number of rankings. But that doesn't mean that we're doing what we could be. And the fact that we routinely elect Republican governors means that there's something that there's some gap between reality and what people think, as well as the fact that our overwhelmingly Democratic legislature often doesn't do a lot of legislating. So one of the things that kind of when we form, when Progressive Mass formed was about trying to change that dynamic in the state house and make and, and push things to the left so that to more in line with where we think a lot of people in Massachusetts are, 
And one thing as well, to, to your point earlier, is it's stunning in Massachusetts is how rare contested elections are. That I know a few years ago, I believe this was in 2016, where Ballotpedia rated us as having the least competitive elections. And that's bad for, democ that's bad for democracy. And it's bad for policymaking. Because if you have a single-party state, and, and, nobody, and everybody thinks that they'll never face a con a, an opponent in the primary, never face an opponent in the general, they don't actually need to do anything because they're almost guaranteed re-election simply by maybe doing a few ribbon cuttings and showing up to work some of the time. However, when you actually do have contested elections, you get to have robust policy debates and you get kind of incumbents can be questioned on the record and new candidates can arise. So let's talk about some of the policy specifics. Uh, I actually want to also want to get to the rules that you yeah. all have been involved in discussing recently, um, including a, agreeing with the Mass Fiscal Alliance. Yeah. I want to ask you about that. But first, let's talk about policy, because you, you talk about pushing the legislature to the left yeah. in terms of the issues. So give us a couple issues that Progressive Massachusetts will be involved in in the upcoming session. So some of our top priorities are things that didn't happen in the last session that hopefully with some of the, the new first years as well as kind of a broader political environment will get more momentum. Let's say the Safe Communities Act, for instance, and one uh, which the Senate passed a narrower version of, and that's to build a state and local law enforcement's collaboration with ICE to make sure that Massachusetts is not being complicit with the federal uh, mass deportation agenda. One, it also speaks to my prior point about the gap between what people think of Massachusetts and where it is, is that Member Representative Denise Prober of Somerville noted that in her more than a decade in the legislature, that the legislature had never once passed legislation to expand the rights of the immigrant population here. That they'll beat back Republican efforts to undermine rights most of the time, but we're not very good at that forward action. Um, we'll also be support, we're also very supportive of updating the funding formula for education since the, which the Senate passed last session and but it got caught in conference committee disputes at the end, where Massachusetts's state aid to local kind of cities and towns relies on a funding formula from 1993. Um, and as I like to say, the music, the hairstyles, the television shows, and more from, um, today and those of 1993 look very different. Uh, and a lot of the governing assumptions are different, and that's reflected in the cost assumptions, which lead to one, between one and $2 billion of shortchanged aid to cities and towns. Although I do hear Friends is coming back in a big way. Right, so. exactly. <laughs> I have 90s nostalgia. Like, I was, I was born in the late 80s. I have 90s nostalgia. Uh, that also will be strong supporter of bold climate action. The legislature did right. some, The Senate passed a pretty comprehensive bill last session. You got some piecemeal things at the end of last, last legislative session. But we do need to see a lot more. Uh, I would also kind of underscore the importance of expanding voting rights. We did automatic voter registration last session, but like our neighbors in Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Connecticut, we should have same-day registration so that on election day and also during the early voting period, people can register to vote. Since we're a young state, we have people, we have kind of a fairly mobile state, and if somebody moves within that 20 days before the election, they shouldn't be banned from participating. So in addition to policy and what policies the legislature pursues, you've had some very pointed criticisms about the ways that legislating actually gets done, mm -hmm. specifically even about the rules and how the rules are being set this year. Walk yeah. us through and walk our listeners through what the controversy is and how on earth you and the Mass Fiscal right. Alliance it, came to be in agreement on it, this. It, it, it's a fascinating thing as well. It's always kind of a, 
I always love when looking at Congress when you see like strange bedfellows. But, so this is kind of a good example of that. Um, and one thing I like to point out with uh, the Massachusetts legislature is that although it's the second oldest deliberative body in the world uh, after the UK Parliament, it doesn't really. They don't do a lot of deliberating, especially especially in the House, where kind of as a general matter of practice, uh, if you have let's say a bill gets filed, hundreds of amendments get filed two-thirds, maybe even four-fifths, possibly even more of that will just get withdrawn without a moment of debate. And maybe you'll get one vote out of the whole thing before they all kind of unanimously or party-line vote for something at the end. And to the point, just like with uncontested elections being bad for democracy, the lack of actual debate is bad for democracy. And that relies on, as I say, both the rules of the body and the norms that govern the body. So people constantly withdrawing their amendments and never standing for roll call votes to some extent is a norm, but there are also ways that you can improve the rules of the body to open it up and decentralize it so there's less power in the speaker's office. So some of the things that we had been talking about, for instance, it actually giving people enough time to read what they're voting on. And you can even see that with the rules debates themselves, where last week, I believe it was Thursday, it might have been Friday, uh, but the Senate posted their full, the full text of what they'll be voting on this Thursday, so that with uh, an amendment filing deadline on Monday, so people had the time to read it, they had the time to talk with colleagues, talk with any, anybody outside that they were interested in hearing the opinion of, while they discuss what to do. The House, it went live um, 9 p.m. on Monday night, and they're voting on it, voting on it shortly and they'll even be taking amendments on the floor, and it's somewhat of a chaotic mess. That's not conducive to good governance. But even with any legislation, uh, one example that I point out is the community benefits district th uh, legislation that the, that the House passed la last year, that they were told in the morning they were voting on it. They voted on it almost unanimously in, in the afternoon. And then afterwards, uh, advocates actually found out what they voted on, and the ACLU and a number of other kind of advocacy groups got into action to explain to the Senate the very troubling parts of the bill, such as how it would allow private entities to infringe on First Amendment rights in public spaces, some cities and towns, that and many of the representatives who voted on it were kind of, after the fact, horrified that that's what they voted on because they hadn't had time to actually read it. Um, another, another point that we've we're supportive of is posting the roll call votes taken in committee online. Uh, a fun fact is that the legislatures in 26 other states already do this, so it's not a particularly foreign or out there concept. And it's just a way of showing to, showing to constituents and even other legislators where people what people are doing, since it's important for constituents to know where their legislators stand, whether they're following through with what they told them that they were doing. But even for somebody in the building, it helps them to know what's happening to the bills that they support. And, and, uh, and I like to speak of kind of a number of the rules of forms is actually empowering legislators themselves to do their jobs of legislating. Uh, the other thing that we have talked about is actually making public who's testifying on either side of a bill, since like we have hearings and there should be more than just kind of a pro forma spectacle and it's useful for legislators who might not have 
if they don't have the time to read everything, they can see who was on either side and see what changes were made to the bill as it advances. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming in. Jonathan is the uh, issue subcommittee chair of Progressive Massachusetts and, as I mentioned, Twitter Slayer. So um, follow Jonathan online. Awesome. Well, thank you again for having me. And I'll just note when talking about our legislative agenda, you can go to progressivemass.com slash agenda and find out all of the bills that we'll be working on this session. Great. Excellent. Thank you. As the state legislature starts their new session, their ranks include a record number of women. This echoes what we're seeing in other offices up and down the ballot and all across the country. But our state government here in Massachusetts is still far from gender parity. So how do we keep moving forward? How do we ensure that 2018 was more than a blip? For that, we're joined by the executive director of Emerge Massachusetts, Nina Leung. Nina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So you're the new executive director of Emerge Massachusetts. Um, tell us first about the work you're doing and what you hope to accomplish in your new role. Yeah, so I'm going to, um, if it's okay, sort of take a step back and talk about um, how I came to find out about Emerge. Um, when the opportunity came to run for at large and to serve my city, I thought, you know, this is insane. I, I can't do this. I, I don't know how to run. I don't know who I'm supposed to be talking to. I don't, I, I have no idea how to do this. Um, but, you know, I kept talking to family, kept talking to friends about it, and it came to a point where it was, you know, why not? You know, why not me? I, I was born and raised in this community. I know it very well. I want to serve. I want to give back. And why not? You know, in the worst case scenario, I lose and I can still really be involved in my community. So why not? Um, I was very lucky. I came to know some folks through other people, friends of friends who, are really entrenched in this industry and, um, you know, had their guidance moving forward and running for office, and, and I won. Um, but it wasn't without its challenges. And afterwards, I had come to learn about Emerge, and um, to this day I'm always wishing that I could turn back time <laughs> and, you know, had taken the program um, before I ran for office because, you know, what Emerge has is so above and beyond just providing the tools to run for office. It's not just about, okay, well, this is what fundraising is. You know, I had, again, done fundraising for other nonprofits and, other organizations in the city, but I didn't know what fundraising meant for a campaign. I didn't know how much I had to raise, where the money goes if somebody hands me a check, um, how to spend that money and what I should be spending it on. I didn't know, you know, if I get an amazing team of volunteers, what do I have them go do? Um, you know, all these little logistics that you don't know going into it um, becomes very difficult when it's all in front of you and all of those pieces are so important. And so, again, I was very blessed to have the resources I did, but had I not, I, I probably honestly would not have run going into it. Um, you know, even the process of pulling papers, getting signatures, when they're due, how you submit them, how you get them certified. I mean, that whole process is very daunting. And I think, um, again, had I not had the folks around me explaining uh, those, those steps to me and explaining the process to me and making it feel like it's something that's really tangible and achievable, I honestly would have been really overwhelmed and intimidated probably out of the process. And so that's what emerge to me um, is so special about, you know, because they provide those tools. They provide that sort of roadmap to make it something that is achievable and attainable. And it's not so daunting and scary. So the women in the class, though, are ready. They're at that point. They're at that aha moment already. Where where do you see their uh, passions coming from? Where why are they there? Um, so it's interesting. This, this is my first class with the organization. And um, I I'm obviously biased, but I think we do have the best class. They're, they're absolutely phenomenal. It's a great range of women from all different backgrounds, all different ages, and um, you know, women that are in different steps of that process of running for office. We have some women that are currently running. We have some women that are planning on running later this year, and we have some women who know what seat they want to run for in the next year to two years, 
but are just 100% sure of taking that leap, right? And I, I completely understand that hesitation. Um, but that being said, you know, we had our first training. We're, we're doing our second one coming up um, in, in a week. And in that first training, we had that conversation, right? We have to create the safe space and have an honest conversation with each other. You know, why are you doing this? What brought you to emerge? What brought you to this place in your life? And it's interesting where each of those stories went. Um, a lot of them, you know, obviously came from their personal background, their personal experience um, here in Massachusetts and their interactions with government. And other women just had, you know, stories about their education or maybe issues that they were really passionate about, and that was the reason why they were running. So not all the stories are the same, um, but you could sort of see that even, you know, the sort of core reasons behind it could either be a personal experience or a passion for an issue that they believe in. As we said at the top, the, the state legislature is about to have the most, or now does have the most women that it's ever had, but it's still only 29% of the total the total body of legislators. How do how do we as a state ensure that, that we don't stop there, that we don't grind to a halt again like we did when we first got to sort of the mid-20s and then it took us, you know, 20 more years to get to add another few points. How does the progress continue? Do you see signs of it just in sign-up numbers? Um, where do you see it, see it going from here? Uh, I think the way we continue it is, honestly, opportunities like this, uh, where people continue to talk about it, where the conversation keeps happening, right? Um, to pull it back to that other example of, you know, why I kept thinking about running for office, people didn't let me stop thinking about it. Um, and on a broader level, that's what we're doing here today, right? We're continuing this conversation. The elections are over, yes, but we didn't stop talking about it November 30th. We didn't stop talking about it in December. We, we, we are still talking about it today. You know, you're doing the work. You're getting the word out. And hopefully folks that listen to this will talk to their friends and talk to their peers and continue that conversation. Um, you know, as far as the work that we are doing at Emerge um, to sort of keep moving that needle along, uh, one of my goals, again, is to make sure that we're reaching all corners of the Commonwealth, that we're letting them know that we're here and that we are a resource to, to allow you to have these tools to feel empowered to want to step up and run for office. And again, whether it's um, for personal reasons or an issue that you're you know, really passionate about, I don't want simply the tools and the roadmap to be the impediment to, to running for office and creating that parity. So I think certainly doing this and getting the word out is important to keep the conversation going. And you said before we started that you have a recruiting class that's this year twice as large as the one you had last year. And the one last year was, you know, quite remarkable in terms of the, the outcomes that were produced and the number of, you know, new legislators and new office holders up and down the ballot. So I, I think in a way it, it seems to speak to the, the level of energy that's continuing. Um, so it, I, I found that st statistic remarkable that uh, the, the number has gone up, continued to go up so much even after 2018, which appeared to be a watershed moment. Yeah, and um, I do have to take a moment here to uh, give credit to the previous executive director, Ryan Olson, who is still with Emerge, but now on the, the national affiliate, Emerge America. She does programming now for them. But she had been with the organization for three years and, you know, certainly created big shoes for me to fill. Um, the outreach and the work that she did with, you know, strengthening our programs and making sure that folks here in Massachusetts know that we exist and that we are here um, you know, the number of applicants we had this year is a direct result of that work. Um, and it's, you know, that network that she had created, not just within the organization with herself and the, and the board that we have, but also within our alumni network. I mean, going into this year with this huge applicant pool, all of the folks who conducted interviews were our alum. Um, you know, they're coming back. They're investing in the process. You know, they're also staying engaged and, you know, getting this sort of message across that we are all here and we exist to support one another. So, um it's an amazing number. It's a remarkable number. I hope to continue to grow it over time. And um, yeah, I hope to be able to continue what Ryan set up for us to be really successful. 
Well, as an alum myself, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to learn in this program. But if there are others out there that are considering wanting to run for office, how do they find you? Uh, so we are located right here in Boston at 15 Court Square, uh, Suite 900, up with uh, NARAL's offices as well. We're very grateful to them to the, uh, for the collaboration. Um, and also they can just go to our website and find my email on there. They can find the cell phone to the organization that goes directly to me, and I'm more than happy to talk to anyone, grab a coffee with them. Um, I really do encourage folks to understand it's an open-door policy and that we're here to answer questions. I know, again, just from going through it myself, that it's a very sensitive thing um, to, to go through this experience, right, and think about putting yourself out there and finding out who you can have those kinds of honest conversations with. And first and foremost, we do encourage that open-door policy, that sort of vulnerability, but most importantly, you know, confidentiality above all else, right? We're here to make sure that this is a safe space for you, that we're giving you these tools, um, but also that you can be honest with any questions or concerns you have. Great. All right. Well, Nina Liang, uh, Executive Director of Emerge Massachusetts, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Well, it's time for our Something to Watch segment. Sam, what do you have your eye on this uh, week? Well, I hate to say that I am totally obsessed with municipal overrides, Steve. That it sounds is. just scintillating. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It actually is quite interesting. For those of for those few listeners to the pod who don't know what that is, explain what an override Everyone is. Everyone turn it off at this point, though. <laughs> so back in the 80s, the great 80s, um, there was a ballot question that passed Proposition 2.5, which restricted municipal electeds from raising property taxes past 2.5% um, each year. And so if a city or town needs to um, raise more funds in order to balance their books or to do anything extra, they have to take it to the ballot. The people need to decide to intentionally raise their own property taxes. And so in Melrose, Massachusetts, we have an override. Um, There are a handful, a healthy handful of other cities and towns that are doing it at the same time. Um, And it's exhausting. So I'm the election again, as I mentioned earlier, is April 2nd. I'm interested to see how it goes um, from being on the campaign and knocking on hundreds of doors. It's been fascinating to find out that there is no real correlation between party on this initiative, on this ballot question, rather. Um, It really has to do whether people trust local government or not. And as a campaign fanatic i'd love to know how we crack that code yeah and i I just actually because overrides are very very important way of funding schools and funding other things these days Um, given the tax restrictions that you just mentioned um, it's something that a lot of communities go through some communities they pass all the time others Mm -hmm. like ours hasn't had one in decades Mm -hmm. Um, so it actually is quite important quite interesting and hopefully we'll do something more on that later on perhaps when we get to talking about education funding in more detail Um, for me this week the thing that i'm watching speaking of funding is the potential MBTA fare increase. So the, the control board announced that they're looking at a six at just over a 6% average fare increase on the MBTA. Um, the question that I have and the question that a lot of people have raised on Twitter is, is this going to come with other increases in transportation funding? So there's this whole, um, you know, very long back and forth. It's much too long for this very brief something to watch segment about, you know, how transportation is funded and you know, whether it should be funded by people who use it more or funded by general taxes more, and roads being the same way. Mm-hmm. You know, the perception that people have is, or that many people have, is that, you know, the roads fund themselves, which they do not. Mm-hmm. You know, both are subsidized, um, but, you know, there, there's perceptions, there's politics, there's um, there, there's just a lot of different issues there. So how that fare increase ends up is a thing that I'm watching this week. 
Amazing. And the thing that we're both watching is last week's <laughs> trivia question <laughs> and this week's trivia question. Um, Sam had this week, so I'm, it, and it's a really good one. But last week's trivia question was, presidential campaigns are often about learning even the most mundane, the most minute details about the candidate, the most unimportant in some cases. But this one's very important, which is, how does Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren take her coffee? The question was from Jen Smith, who actually asked her this in the town hall, and the answer is she doesn't drink coffee. You're kidding. She drinks tea. I've seen her drink beer recently, too. <laughs> I think all of America saw that. <laughs> um, but anyway, that, so that's the answer to the question. So, um, And there's a GIF, which we'll be posting on Twitter, of Jen asking her this question and re reacting in shock when she, when she learned the answer. <laughs> um, but anyway, Sam, you have the trivia question for this week. Let's have it. All right. So here's the trivia this week. Where in Boston is the only place in the world where a boat can sail under a train, driving under a car, driving under a plane? That's a good one. Thanks. I have absolutely no idea. I don't either. <laughs> <laughs> there I do, is an I do know the okay, answer. I was going to say there is an answer. All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. I'm Sam Hammer. And I'm Steve Cazella of the Massing Polling Group. Our producer this week and every week now is Libby Gormley. Find us online wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you all for listening.